Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. First gospel, first book in the New Testament. Uh, the the beauty of this um, the beauty of this series on red letters is um, basically Pastor Kurt was giving us the uh, the teaching team the option to to preach on anything, right? I mean, you know how many red letters there are. He, unfortunately, he was um, he was assuming we were smart enough not to uh, pick stuff really hard and realize how stupid you were once you chose them, and you were halfway in and it was too late to change. So here we go. Uh, the red letters we're going to deal with today are just something simple, just the second coming of Christ. Um, it, it's one of the foundational beliefs of the church, uh, and it's boldly announced in the Apostles' Creed. So let's say it together. For those, Dana grew up Lutheran, so she knows this, but I'm a fourth-generation Nazarene, uh, so um, I rarely heard this. So the letters, uh, the words are up there. Hopefully we can read them together. Let's say it. Here we go. We believe in Jesus Christ. God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, He will come to judge the living and the dead." Here's what hundreds of millions of Christians have believed through the centuries and haven't gotten to see it. It's a great doctrine of the church, so grab your notes, find a pen or a pencil, and here we go. A great doctrine of the church, here's your first blanks, Jesus will return. Here it is, Jesus will return, and it could be at any moment, and everything will be set right. See, the Apostle Paul called this the blessed hope of the church. Our hope is in the one who's coming back and who will wipe out every tear from our eye. Look at these red letters. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but most of Revelation, the book of Revelation, is red letters. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so look at these red letters from the Revelation. There will be no longer be any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Behold, I, Jesus, I am making all things new. So with this background, we're going to look at some more red letters. They come from the greatest second coming message ever preached. You actually find it in several of the synoptic gospels, but Matthew is the longest. It's Matthew 24 and 25. Um, and um, he told some amazing stories and parables and made amazing declarations here. Um, and uh, this one should get everyone's attention. You may be familiar with it. Let's uh, look at it together, the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when fo- the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, and all all got drowsy and began to sleep, but at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the prudent answered and said, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later, the other virgins also came and said, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then. Be on the alert then. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Look at the point of the story. I've listed the the metaphors here, right? The bridegroom is Christ. The wedding feast is Christ's return. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. Those who have the oil have trusted in Christ for their salvation and are believers. And those without the oil are lost. So in this passage, we get two striking warnings. Look again at verse 5. It's on the screen. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all... You ever noticed that before? They all got drowsy and began to sleep. Warning number one is actually a warning to the church. Look at this. Jesus' return will catch everyone by surprise. I taught um, at Crossroads for 10 years on the second coming in Sunday school. The joke became the Lord's going to return before Dan even gets to chapter 2 of Revelation. Um, and and, and this, is, this is really, really important for us to understand. It will catch everyone by surprise. I told people often in that class that if somebody, if any of the date setters happen to pick right, God will change it just so they'll be wrong. I'm convinced. Nobody, nobody, nobody knows the day. And guess what? Everyone's asleep when Jesus comes back. Even the church. Even the wise. Even the prudent. Even the saved. Even the spirit-filled. Everybody's asleep. It happens, and nobody expects it. Strange, isn't it? One of the great doctrines of the church, and we don't think it's going to happen. See, they, they all asleep. Okay, so look at this amazing implication. Write, write it in. When Christ returns, even the church will be asleep. <laughs> Warning number two from this text. When Christ returns, everyone's decision will already be made. Think of the parable. Today, the door is open. The bridegroom hasn't returned yet. But when he comes, everyone's vote will already be in. It isn't a last-minute switch when a person finally realizes that they'd better change sides or they're hosed. That's not the picture. Being ready means that I have an ongoing, uncompromising commitment to living for the king right now before crunch time, before the final trumpet sounds. This teaching is pervasive in Scripture. It leads to a foundational concept that you find throughout the Word. Here it is. Here's your next blank. When Christ comes, it will be too late to get ready. When Christ returns, everyone will already have made up their mind about Him. Now, 
as we work through this precept, I want to deal with the two most common complaints about this classical biblical doctrine. Here's complaint number one. Here's your blanks. For people who are basically good, which is basically everyone but Mao and Hitler, right? All of us are basically good, except a couple of people we can name, right? For the people who are basically good, it's unfair not to warn them. Now, the response to this complaint depends upon whether a person has heard the Scripture or not. So for those who have heard the Word, have had access to the Word, notice they've actually heard it over and over and over again. Literally billions throughout history have said the Apostles' Creed. He will come again and judge the living and the dead. Over a billion people, if you look at history, have known from the Word. So, there's a much broader complaint, though, that's completely appropriate to all of humanity, regardless of where they live and what they've heard. Here it is. Here's your next blank. The universal biblical response to complaint number one. Right? Remember, complaint number one is, for people who are basically good, it's unfair not to warn them. Complaint, the, the response, God has surrounded humanity with his amazing grace and his relentless warnings. Let me unpack that a little bit. God reliably woos every human heart. Those who reject him will do so only because they repeatedly pushed back when he faithfully convicted them of their sin and relentlessly pursued them with his love. See, God speaks loudly to all creation. It's called general revelation. And through the conscience, through all creation and through the conscience. We're surrounded by God's faithful announcements of the truth. In fact, he set up the world so that it constantly speaks of his nature, his character, his power, and his plan to save us. In fact, this is exactly what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. Look with me at verse 18. It'll be on the screen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Isn't this interesting? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, I love how the theologians say, are they ignorant? Yes. They're willingly ignorant. Suppress the truth. Now notice, he goes on to say, wait, 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 where's the truth? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. And now watch how he unpacks this. It's magnificent. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Romans 2 teaches about the conscience. The middle of Romans 2 is a staggering, amazing statement about how God speaks in the conscience. So the complaint that we haven't been given fair warning doesn't fly. It's a smokescreen. It's humanity's scam. We have no excuses because he's been absolutely faithful to reveal his truth. People who are unprepared for Christ's return will never be able to say honestly that the reason they were caught off guard and the reason they don't believe is because God didn't warn them. He's placed signposts and bullhorns and warnings and alarms and guardrails all around us, all throughout history, If you will hear, you can be a Moabite woman who's never heard the Word of God, and you will go find God's Word. 
The reality is all throughout the scripture, this amazing, if you will be saved, God will save you. The question is, will you, will you, will you be saved? So we see this truth revealed in another passage of red letters. Turn with me to Luke 18. So a couple of chapters over, excuse me, Luke chapter 16, Luke 16. And this is a really strange story. Um, if you've uh, read it before, you may have puzzled over it. There's some, we could spend, we could do a whole series on this. Um, this, is, uh, this is actually two real people, a real man named Lazarus and a real rich man whose name is Rich Man. <laughs> Think about that. It was, it was his identity. You know, we can hit a $30 million home with a Frisbee if you're good at throwing it from our parking lot here. Three zero, not three million, thirty million. Oh, where's our identity? So, um, look at this, verse nineteen. Verse nineteen in Luke chapter sixteen. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with crumbs, they were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. This guy was hurting. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Two sides of Sheol, the place of the dead, before the ascension, when Jesus took the believing Old Testament believers to heaven with himself, because they could not, until he died and was resurrected, they could not leave the place of the dead to be by God. They had not yet known the gospel. Okay? So there's Abraham's bosom, which is the pleasant waiting holding tank for believers from the Old Testament. And there is, depending upon whether you look at uh, the, the, the uh, Old Testament or the New Testament, if you use the Greek, a place called torments uh, in Hebrew and uh, called Hades in, in the Greek. Okay? So after all that, I hope I can find where I was. The angels took him to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. By the way, notice this was not about being rich. This should have been a guy named Steve who happened to be rich, who found his identity in Christ. Or in this case, his identity in the God revealed in the Bible. Okay? So remember, this isn't because, he's not there because he's rich. This This isn't the story. If you have a tough life, you go to heaven. And if you have a good life, you go to hell. That is not the story. The identity is the issue. So in his riches, notice his idolatry, that's why he ends up here. So notice, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So he's on the bad, the torments side in Hebrew, side of Sheol, the place of the dead, before Christ ascends, okay? So notice, and in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he called Abraham, he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off his tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those, there is, folks, there's no purgatory. In order that 
uh, those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that those who want to cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, Listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Listen, church, they have the word. Moses and the prophets is a technical term in the Hebrew for the Word of God. They have the Word. They have the truth. They've heard it over and over again. Notice that's what Abraham is saying to him. But he said, no, but Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, listen to Abraham's insight. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to the Word of God, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Whoa. I mean, there is so much in this, but listen, this story reveals an astonishing truth about the rich man. Look at the rich man's implied accusation. Here's your blanks. The reason I'm separated from God is because he didn't give enough evidence. His word wasn't sufficient. How many times have you heard the word and you're still waiting to obey? The complaint is, your word isn't sufficient, God. And notice, and he didn't show me enough signs. Oh my. Notice what the rich man is implying by what he says that God should do for his brothers. Look at this. I've re- I think I've put this up on the screen. Look at this. God, you haven't given us enough information. You have made, haven't made it obvious enough. You should have given us spectacular miracles. The reason we aren't following you is because you didn't do enough for us. The problem isn't with us. The problem is that God hasn't done what he should have done. If we really need saving, he should have come up with a better plan to save us. So let's get this straight. We just heard in Romans 1 that God put the whole universe together in such a way that every moment in every corner of creation, in every generation, he shouts the reality of his existence and the nature of who he is and the attributes of his character. We're surrounded. Every sunrise is an announcement. I am who I am. And now, We're reading the story where a human has the audacity to say, God, you didn't speak clearly enough. You didn't do what you should have done, and that's why I'm in agony. In uh, other words, the reason I'm here isn't my fault. It's God's fault. What an astonishing depth of pride and blindness and delusion. So here we are working on this foundational precept, right? When Christ comes it'll be too late to get ready. And complaint number one was that people who are basically good, it's, not, it's unfair to not warn them. Now look at complaint number two. Here you go. Those who rejected God would make a different decision if God gave them longer. Write this in. Look at this. Those who rejected God, complaint number two, would make a different decision if God gave them longer or if he gave them another chance. So let me give you the reason why this complaint doesn't fly. I'll give you two complaint busters here. Ready? Complaint buster number one. While the rich man desperately wants to be comforted, look at this, 
Not even his agony makes him willing to change sides. Now watch this as this starts, as we start actually looking at the theology of this incredible message that Jesus gives. You see, we need to look carefully at the subtle nuance of the text in this parable. Look at what Abraham says to the rich man in verse 26. It's on the screen. Look at this. Between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. Abraham talking to the rich man who says, hey, can you send him down to put some water on his finger and touch my tongue? Notice, so that those, Abraham, those who wish to come over from here to you, do you hear that? Those that wish to come from Abraham's bosom over to you will not be able. And just a statement of fact now, that none may cross over from there to us. Here's an astonishing, here's your blank, an astonishing fact in the text. Look at this. This is mind-blowing. Only the redeemed have a desire to go to the other side. Now, wait a second. We'll see how the Scripture shows this repeatedly in the testimony of some of the greatest people who ever lived, who looked like Christ. This is an amazing concept. Notice, there are some who wish to cross over from the redeemed side to the side of the lost, but there are none who wish to leave the side of Hades. Now, hang with me here. (laughs) That sounds weird. Let's first deal with the redeemed. How could this be? How could it be? Why would anyone be willing to cross over from paradise into Hades? Think about this. Where did Christ go for the three days that he was in the grave? We actually just affirmed it in the Apostles' Creed. Look at it with me. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Notice, at the crucifixion, Jesus descended into Hades. But why? Because he was willing to take on the penalty that we deserve so that we could experience eternal life. In other words, Christ was willing to descend into hell to switch places with us, to cross the chasm, to go over to the other side so that we could go to paradise. The hearts of those in Abraham's bosom, are aching for the lost who are on Hades. But as we'll see, and we'll unpack a bit more, over there, they have no interest in coming this way. Watch how this text teaches that in a minute. So, this should remind us of the amazing statement made by Moses, who was willing to do the same thing for the salvation of the Hebrews. After the idolatrous Israelites worshipped the golden calf, you can read this. You should read it in Exodus 32 when you get a chance. When they worshipped the golden calf, Moses told God that he'd be willing to have his name blotted out of the book of life if it would lead to the salvation of the unbelieving Israelites. Isn't that amazing? 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses was being Christ-like. If I will be damned and it will lead to their salvation, Lord, then go ahead, blot my name out. What an amazing concept. So this example shows us that the only way of redemption has always come through the expense of someone who was willing to lay down their life for others. Being a picture of Jesus is the only way God uses us to save others. 
So here's the great biblical irony. Here's your blank. The lost haven't the slightest interest in crossing over the chasm into paradise. You ready? But those who are in paradise would be willing to cross over to the place of torment. And notice, and the reason is they've become like Christ. Lord, I'll switch sides with them if it'll save them. Exactly like Jesus. So the first response to the complaint that people should get another chance and that even the agony of hell doesn't make them willing to change. Isn't it amazing? And here's complaint buster number two. Here you go. We'll apply in just a minute. Get out of the theology into the application. Repentance, sorry, four blanks. I'm not supposed to do this, but here it is. Repentance doesn't get easier over time. It gets harder. Listen, church. Repentance doesn't get easier over time. It gets harder. And a recurrent refusal to repent can become permanent forever. Notice this. This is incredibly important. The reason the man in Hades doesn't have a possibility of a second chance isn't because God comes to the place where he finally is unwilling to forgive him. Oh yeah, God changes. He becomes unforgiving. No, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was always the Savior. He will always be the Savior. At his essence will always be the offer of forgiveness. Whoa, now watch this. So, the reason there's no possibility of a second chance is because the one thing that the lost person must do is the one thing that would never cross his mind. Ready? He'd never dream of taking responsibility for his sin. The most intolerable thing he could conceive of would be to truly repent. And the fact that he spent a lifetime justifying living his own way means that his heart has become infinitely hard. He has become irredeemable on his side, not on God's side. Oh my. So by the time his life ends, he'd rather be eternally separated from God than admit that the position he's in is his fault. You see, even salvation must be on his terms. In other words, if God will save him in a way that's acceptable to him, he'll consider getting saved. But he holds to his demand that if he can't have heaven on his terms, then astonishingly, he actually prefers hell. Which reminds me of the amazing statement by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he says even heaven would be hell for those who hate God's will. How do you import them into a place where we say every time we say it, uh, your will be done on heaven as it is in, uh, uh, in, in heaven as it is in heaven. Excuse me, on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven. Who in the world would want to live there except people who love God's will? So even heaven would be, God cannot make a heaven for a person who demands their own way. There is no heaven for that person. So application number one. Application number one. Salvation, here's your blank. Salvation never occurs in anyone who is unwilling to give up control of their life. See, the rich man gets exactly what he wants, his way. His way. And at this point, we've come to the real issue of answering why all the decisions will be final when Jesus comes back. 
The fact is, it doesn't really matter whether anyone could change their decision because no one would change their decision. The mercy of God has made it so everyone who's ever lived has had enough light, enough grace, enough truth to make the decision to respond to God. And this means that what humans have decided by their free will in this age is exactly what they will continue to choose in eternity. And this exposes an incredibly important truth. Listen to this. The finality of a person's choice doesn't come from an inadequate salvation plan or from a God who finally gets fed up and changes his nature or from some arbitrary time clock that means when the buzzer's buzzer goes off, it's too late to change your mind. That's not what the second coming is. Here's the reality. When the buzzer goes off, all minds will already have been made up. And so it's simply incorrect to believe that if people were given more time or another chance, they'd make a different choice. In another book, C.S. Lewis dealt with this issue. Okay, if God's truly loving Wouldn't he give people more than just one chance? Wouldn't he give them many? And his response is the classical, biblical understanding of the saving nature of God. Here it is. It's a key concept. Write it in. The Savior would give us a million chances. C.S. Lewis's words. The Savior would give us a million chances if that plan had any hope of changing the decision that we will make with the one chance we already have. Isn't that amazing? What an insight. Okay, so now, why only one chance? Because he's provided the perfect way out of our self-destruction. Thus, if we won't choose his one way, we wouldn't choose it in two or ten or a million lives. And now, let me point out a parallel question that comes up, right? Why did God make only one way of salvation? The fact is... Robbie Zacharias now, if he provided 10 ways, we'd want 11. Isn't this incredibly expressive? And what's amazing is this has always been biblical doctrine. The only people who aren't saved are those who won't be saved. And he, here we are just begging. So the ultimate issue isn't how many ways he provided, but rather the fact that we want him to save us on our terms. I want my way of salvation, not his. So let me explain this another way. The salvation plan that God has given to humanity isn't the hardest salvation plan or the plan for top performers or insiders. It's not the plan for God's favorites. On the contrary, God's salvation plan is the only plan that could save the world. Okay, and now this is going to blow your mind, but it comes right out of the text Look at what Gethsemane proved. Look at the text from Luke 22. And he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, you ready? Father, if you are willing, let this cup, let this cross, let this salvation plan, let this plan go away. Father, is there another plan? Jesus begged for another plan for salvation. Has that ever occurred to us? This is astonishing. Look at the staggering truth about Gethsemane. Here's your blank. Jesus himself hoped there was more than just one way. He asked the Father, is there any other way? If there was another way than the cross, the Father would have provided it. 
that rather than giving us what we deserve, God gave us the one thing that would ever save anyone. He gave himself. Aren't you glad? Application number two. God is looking for those who will sacrifice their own interests so that others will come to know him. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Return briefly to the story of the rich man. Among those who are on both sides of the chasm, the desire to change side is only on the side of the redeemed. Their heart is yearning for the salvation of those across the chasm. And this is because crossing over the chasm is exactly what Christ did on the cross. He was willing to descend into hell, to switch places. We heard it from Moses. Now look at this text from Romans chapter 9. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. I, the Apostle Paul, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Look at this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. Why? For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Let me ask you, are we like that for the lost? Some of us will pay nothing for the lost. Some of us won't even pay for our reputation to be tainted because we name the name of Jesus. And here is Paul saying, Lord, if you would send me to hell, if it would save the Israelites, then go ahead. I'm with Jesus. I'll descend into Hades for the good of others. Wow. And application number three. One more red-letter passage. Here's the blanks right now. It's time to stop delaying. It's time to stop waiting till the next time to respond to the Spirit's call. Back to the Olivet Discourse. Now Matthew 24. Matthew 24, look at verse 29. What an amazing message Jesus preaches. And here it is. He's talking about His return Verse 29, Matthew 24, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, whoa, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of the sky to another. Now verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which they were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Notice, regular old days happening. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field, amazing. One will be taken and one will be left. Like that. There will be two women grinding at the mill, One will be taken, one will be left. Boom. Just like that. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time the night the thief was coming, 
he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into for this reason. You be ready too. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So, you ready? Don't think Jesus could come back before you get home from church today. It's a perfect time for Jesus to come. Because he promised he's coming when we don't think he will. Now you know why I think he'll change it if somebody gets the date right, right? He's coming at a time that we don't think he will. Oh my. So look at the astounding truth that flows from this passage. Notice how the two women are at work just like any other day. And the two men are simply going about their business just like they always do. And the parable teaches that Jesus returns on a regular old day. They don't see it coming, and there's no hint given that this day is going to be the day. Folks, today, we don't know if this day is going to be the day, and that's exactly the kind of day that Jesus is going to come back. Wow. (laughs) Listen, church, nothing has to happen before Jesus comes back. Um, This is interesting to me. Many believers have been mistaught about what has to happen before Jesus can come back. They're waiting to see global earthquakes or appearances of the Antichrist or the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem or World War III. Anybody been on any of those bandwagons? This is, if you think this, wake up. If you're waiting for the signs of the times so that you can read in some book and you're thinking that Jesus can't return because the world hasn't gotten bad enough yet, think again. That's why the historic doctrine of the church has always been Jesus can return at any time. Ready for Christ's final warning? Here it is. Write it in. When he returns, it won't be time to get ready. It'll be time to be ready. Pastor Josiah, come on up. This dramatic warning is given to us to try to prevent people from falling into complacency about our lives. We all tend to fall asleep at the wheel, right? We all tend to think that there will always be time to get things right later. Our tendency is to be kind of just let life go along, put off making big commitments. And in the meantime, we use the delays to live our life our way. The general idea is that most of us have, pretty much all of us have, 80 or 90 years in our country to do what we want. And then, in the end, we'll make sure that we get right with God so we can comfortably slip into eternity and go to heaven. And this is why Jesus wanted us to wake up, to make sure that we don't miss the warning to get everyone's attention. Notice he made it piercingly clear that on the day of his return, it will be too late to get ready. Here's the final key concept, write it in. Only the fool, only the fool believes that there will always be another chance to respond. So as we listen again, look at these passages and while they were going that should be up there and while they were going to make the purchase the bridegroom came to those who were ready and went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut later the virgins also came saying Lord, Lord open up for us but he answered truly, truly I say to you I do not know you be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour for this reason you must also be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not 
think he will. And these uh, powerful, powerful red letter warnings, with them fresh in our mind, I want to just simply end with two questions. First, will you with Moses and Paul and Christ sacrifice your life so that others may come to know him? Are you willing to give your life and your time and your resources away that others may find the only hope that there will ever be? Will you lay down your life for those around you so that the light of Christ will become so real to them that they're compelled to seek him? And second, right now, I want us to take a few minutes to be brutally honest with ourselves. If you are really honest with yourself, are you ready for Jesus to come back right now? One way to think about it is, if he comes right now, will you have any explanations to make to Jesus? (laughs) Have you honestly faced your desire to run your own life? and taken that desire and surrendered it to the coming king? Have you placed everything in your life at his feet? Does he have all of you, every decision, every plan, every relationship, every corner of your heart and mind? Let me boil it down to one simple question. Are you ready? On a morning like this, some may want to come to the altar, but I would like everyone, if you are physically able, to just kneel at your seat. Go ahead right now. Make a transition. Kneel at your seat if you can physically do it. And I want you to ponder this question. Am I ready? Am I ready? What do I need to do to be ready? Let the Holy Spirit work in your life as Pastor Josiah sings.